Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian book reviews contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott and I'm Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $60 for Print Plus Online. G'day, ABR podcast listeners. This is Peter Rose, editor of ABR, here to remind you about the 2023 Calibre Essay Prize. Now in its 17th year, Calibre is one of the world's leading prizes for an original essay. It's worth a total of $7,500. ABR seeks non-fiction essays of 2,000 to 5,000 words on any subject, personal or political, literary or speculative, traditional or experimental. The prize is open to all essayists writing in English. Entries close on December the 30th and details can be found on the ABR website. Good luck. In this week's ABR podcast... Kevin Foster, an academic at Monash University, looks at the hard truths concealed by terms frequently used to understand Australia's actions on the international sphere, such as rules-based international order. Kevin Foster, who has published widely on the representation of war in the Australian media, reviews a new book by Clinton Fernandez. Professor of International and Political Studies at the University of New South Wales and a former Australian Army Intelligence Officer. Fernandez's book, Sub-Imperial Power, Australia in the International Arena, maintains that the primary ambition of Australian foreign policy is to demonstrate this country's usefulness to the United States. Here is Kevin Foster reading his review for the December issue of ABR, which is titled Playing the Deputy Sheriff. When the Howard government committed Australian troops to fight in Afghanistan in 2001, and later in Iraq, it did so without recourse to a parliamentary majority or the courts. Not only can the Prime Minister sanction the dispatch of the nation's forces to fight overseas, he or she has no need of parliamentary approval. Indeed, there's no requirement to debate such a proposal before a decision is made. Australia has no equivalent of the US War Powers Resolution of 1973, which limits the President's freedom to make war. While reform of this extraordinary power is possible, the High Court has noted that Parliament has the power to limit or impose conditions on the exercise of the executive power. No government has seen fit to pursue this option. Australian governments of all persuasions have preferred to retain the power to deploy forces as they see fit and to keep Parliament out of the gravest decision that any democracy can take, to risk the lives of its service personnel. All the lesser powers, Norway and the Netherlands among them, foolishly attached to the conventions of democracy, insist on parliamentary authorisation for the dispatch of forces. Some have interpreted Australia's retention of executive authority and the dynamic role in world affairs that it has enabled as a mark of strength. The former Foreign Minister Alexander Downer insisted in his sternest widow twanky voice that Australia was not middling or average, like those democratic lightweights Norway or the Netherlands, but a considerable power and a significant country, 
as evidenced by its prominent role in world affairs, where it faithfully supports the foreign policy adventures of its principal ally, the United States. If Australia's wars have been Australia's choice, there has been a remarkable consistency about the conflicts that it has elected to join and the role in world affairs that this has afforded it. As Clinton Fernandez points out, the much-trumpeted rules-based international order that Australians have fought and died to uphold is nothing more than a euphemism for an imperial order in which the United States sets the rules, its allies assume their allotted supporting roles, and the rest of the world does as it's told. Demonstrating support for the United States ranks ahead of all other priorities in Australian foreign policy, and every opportunity to reinforce this fidelity is taken up regardless of risk or costs. When the Howard government committed the nation's forces to the 2003 invasion of Iraq over the protestations of the Labour opposition, its principal strategic considerations were political, not military. Its modest contingent of ground forces largely stayed out of trouble in the far west of the country. This was such a quiet area that special forces personnel who were deployed there were subject to regular ribbing from their coalition colleagues about the pristine condition of their assault vehicles. It's little wonder that their equipment scarcely lost its showroom sheen, as the Australians were not in Iraq to provide muscle. Their mere presence fulfilled the nation's principal political goals. A confidential Australian Army study of the Iraq War revealed that the true strategic intent of Australia's military commitment was to safeguard and improve the nation's relations with the United States. Of course, this was not what the Howard government told the public. Its repeated assertions that the invasion of Iraq was a defensive measure to discover and destroy Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction and ensure that the threat of Islamic terrorism was confronted in the Middle East rather than the suburbs of Melbourne or Sydney, was just mandatory rhetoric, calculated to keep the public on side. The true centre of gravity from Canberra's perspective, the secret army study revealed, was to not jeopardise the Washington alliance. If this wasn't bad enough, Fernandez reveals that far from protecting the Australian public from the threat of Islamist terrorism, Australian intelligence, like its British and US counterparts, knew that the invasion of Iraq, along with other acts of Western adventurism in the Middle East and North Africa, would directly increase that threat and produce a significant expansion of terrorist activity. That is to say, the Australian government knowingly made foreign policy decisions that exposed the Australian public to greater risk. Australian foreign policy is a matter of priorities, and demonstrating the nation's relevance to the United States clearly occupies a higher priority in safeguarding the security of the Australian people. If you think that the Australian government is above such cold calculation, consider the case of the Pote family. Private Robert Pote was one of three Australian soldiers murdered by a rogue Afghan army sergeant, Hekma Tuller, in a green-on-blue attack at an Australian forward operating base in August 2012. Instead of facing the death penalty, after seven years in an Afghan jail, Hekma Tuller was moved to Qatar, where the United States and the Taliban were hammering out a peace agreement without the involvement of the Afghan government. At the conclusion of these talks, despite the protestations of Pote's father, Hugh, and the evident discomfort of some more principled Australian politicians, the United States approved Hekmatullah's release from custody. He walked free 
when Kabul fell to the Taliban. The hard truth for the Pope family and all those who've lost loved ones to terrorist attacks or suffered their effects, the government would argue, is that the prioritisation of our relations with the United States has been in the country's interest. It's ensured that for more than 80 years, ever since the British surrendered Singapore and Australia turned to the United States to underwrite its security, the country has finished on the winning side in the fights that mattered and has reaped the political and economic benefits of sub-imperial service. In return for its faithful projection of US power in the region, its demonization of Washington's enemies and its embrace of their friends, even when this has jeopardized the country's relationship with its principal trading partner, Australia has benefited from the rules-based international order. That this order has preserved the interests of a small coterie of developed nations at the expense of a host of developing countries and their people, locking them into a subordinate role in the supply chain, providing raw materials, cheap labour and cut-price manufactures, makes clear that the order Australia defends looks manifestly unfair, if not disordered, to those disadvantaged by it, while the rules it is founded on are ultimately underpinned by the threat of brute power. Yet Australia is both the agent and the object of this rules-based order, both a beneficiary and a hostage. Foreign investors own up to 75% of shares in the nation's top 20 companies that comprise around half of the market capitalisation of the Australian Stock Exchange. US-based investors are the largest shareholders in 16 of these top 20 companies. As owners of the equity, it's these shareholders that determine the corporation's priorities. A dependent economy is no basis for an independent foreign policy. Hence, Australia pursues its strategic interests by working under the auspices of the United States to sustain an integrated economic system that supports the interests of global investors. The prosperity of elite Australian investors, and with it the Australian economy, is underwritten by the same conditions that ensure the prosperity of elite US investors. As US alarm at China's assertiveness has grown, so Australia's political position has become increasingly uncomfortable. As the recent deterioration in its relations with China demonstrates, Australia's sub-imperial left tenancy is in open warfare with its economic imperatives. The lessons of history show that Australia's room for manoeuvre is circumscribed and suggest that the most consequential decisions about the nation's future for almost a century will either be taken out of its hands or be determined by the interests of others. 60,000 years of unbroken indigenous occupation make a mockery of the national anthem's former boast that we are young. Clinton Fernandez's remarkable book makes a compelling case that our freedom is hardly less illusory. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.